reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, the first 18 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippia, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you and all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel the way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that you may love, may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may be approved what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having being, pardon me. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here, pardon me, that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, but not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. So it concludes the reading of the Word of God. Good morning. It's a, it's a thrill to be here. It's, it's strange for me to be here. It's new. It's all very new. It's new faces. It's a new building. It's a new town. It's all new. I'm, I'm even wearing a new belt. I, I forgot my belt when I came over here, so I had to go to the Walmart and buy a new belt, and the belt feels weird as well. So if, if I'm pulling at my pants a bit, it's because I'm trying to break in a new belt. But I'm really happy to be here. This is exciting for me. And uh, I'm excited to get to know you all and to be able to start to settle in here and just uh, find a new home, another home here. And I'm looking forward to that. It's really, really good to see live faces in front of me. It has actually been a number, you know, the last time I preached in front of a live audience was here back in March. That was the last time. And, uh, 
I get to do it again, and it feels good to be able to see and interact with people right in front of me. So that's, that's exciting for me, too. And I, I even get the privilege of launching us into a whole new sermon series. So I'm excited about that. And over the next number of weeks, we will be working our way through uh, Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And by very quick way of introduction, because I've got the start of the whole series, so let me just really quickly do a, a little introduction and I'll launch into it. I've got to tell you, too, there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, we are given fairly big chunks of scripture to work through in a sermon, and it's a lot of stuff. So I'm going to try to get through it and do it as much diligence as, as I can. So by, by way of introduction, um, one of the interesting things about this letter that Paul writes, and the way it begins, is that Paul does not spend a whole lot of time introducing himself uh, to the Philippians. And usually he does. In most of his other letters, he does. He often provides... Uh, uh, a big introduction, so some of his credentials as an apostle, and why he's writing the letter, and even often why these people who are reading the letter should actually listen to it and take heed of what he's going to say. Now, Paul does none of that in this letter, you see, because Paul doesn't need to with the Philippians. These are Paul's friends. He has a strong and well-established relationship with them. It's a good and a close relationship. Paul actually started this church in Philippi, and the starting of that church is an amazing story, and you might remember a lot of it. Paul starts, the very first convert in, in, the, in the city of Philippi was a, na a woman named Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a very wealthy lady, and the church ends up meeting in her home. Uh, also, there was an abused slave girl who Paul rescued from an oppressive spirit, and also from an oppressive master. She, she joins the church. And then after uh, having rescued this woman for their efforts, Paul and Silas are thrown in prison, and they're beaten in prison, and then they hold this worship service in prison in the middle of the night. And then through a whole series of events, the jailer of that prison ends up being baptized, he and his whole household, and they join the church at Lydia's house. So you've got this uh, rapidly growing, amazing broad, diverse church that is happening in Philippi. And if you want to read about that, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. Um, Paul also visited the church at Philippi at least two other times after he was there that first time when he started the church. Uh, so he's had a lot of contact with them. And, and what's more is they retained close contact. That was the unique thing about this church. Paul and this church retained very close contact even when he wasn't there. And you know, that was not always the case with the churches that Paul planted or the churches that he had written to. In many cases, we see some of these fledgling churches that Paul either planted or is writing to. Uh, the connection doesn't stay so close when Paul's not there. In some cases, the faith of these other fledgling churches wavers when Paul is not there, and they actually want to become kind of distanced from Paul because they're kind of wandering. And, uh, oh, see, something else new is my... My headpiece is falling off. Um, and, and in some cases, the other thing that happens is, is these fledgling churches, some of them sort of drift back when Paul's gone. They drift back into some of their moral habits of the past, and they kind of want to create separation from Paul because of that. And, and in some cases, the churches have been influenced or swayed by others, other leaders who did not actually believe that Paul was an authentic apostle, so they too didn't even know if they should retain connection with the apostle. And more often than not, when Paul writes to those churches, 
those are the reasons why he's actually writing them, because their faith is failing, because their morality is slipping, because they doubt that Paul's an apostle and that his gospel is authentic. So he writes to them to try to set things right again and to set his relationship right with them again too. But that's not the case with the church at Philippi. This is different. This is unique. From the very beginning, these Philippian Christians have supported Paul in everything. They have partnered with Paul in his ministry as an apostle sort of slash missionary. They have been an encouragement to Paul. They have supported him and his ministry financially in huge ways on several occasions. And now, and now, you know why Paul's writing this letter? The reason that Paul is even writing this letter is because now that Paul has finally found himself imprisoned, right, likely in Rome, Paul's writing this from prison in Rome, uh, because he's been preaching the gospel throughout the empire and has finally landed him in prison and very well could be leading to his execution, the Philippian church now has sent Paul yet another gift to support him during this time of imprisonment, money to care for his needs while he's in prison. And not even just money. They've sent him more than just money. They've sent him a person too. They actually send him one of their own young men, a man named Epaphroditus, uh, to stay with Paul and to assist him in whatever ways he possibly can. That's why Paul's writing this letter. Very different from some of the other reasons why Paul writes letters to other churches. And now this letter that Paul is writing uh, is a thank you, really, to the church at Philippi for coming through for him yet again. And also, also because Epaphroditus has unfortunately gotten very sick and he almost died. And poor Epaphroditus is, is depleted and he's worn out and frankly, he needs to go back home. He needs to be sent back home. So Paul is taking this occasion to write this letter to send it back with Epaphroditus, commending him for his efforts and the risk that he's endured to come and help Paul and also thanking the church for their incredible support of him as well as he goes on, of course, to encourage the church with some words of instruction and blessing. And that's really why Paul writes the letter. So this is a very unique, a very personal, a very heartfelt letter that we have here. And I mean, for the Apostle Paul, what, what a joy it is to be able to write a letter like this to a church like this. What a joy. No wonder Paul says in verse 3 that he thanks God in all of his remembrance of the Philippines every time he thinks about them. Right? Paul is compelled to just thank God for all of those memories that he has with this particular church because they're good memories. Right? They're good memories. He thanks God every time they come to his mind, and apparently that's often. <laughs> apparently that's often. And, and then in verse 4, it says that when he prays for them, and apparently he prays for them often, probably when he thinks about them, that leads to him praying for them, right? And when he, when he prays for them, he, he says that he prays with joy. With joy. And, and joy, if you're familiar with the letter to the Philippines, joy is a huge theme of this letter. In fact, the letter has been dubbed by many people as the epistle of joy, the letter of joy. And I think, it, I think it's 14 times the word joy or rejoice is used in these four short chapters that make up this letter. This is a joyful letter for Paul to write. And then as we move forward in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, here's where Paul begins to talk about some of his very close 
partnership that he's had with the Philippian church. They're his partners in the gospel, he says. They're even his partners in imprisonment and in defending the gospel. Because after all, they send money to help him in that task. They send Epaphrodites to assist him. They're partnering with him in his defense of both himself and the gospel while he's in prison. It's just like you get the pictures that the Philippians were with him all the way in this. They're, they're committed to Paul and to his ministry. They're partners. And Paul yearns for this church with all the affection that Jesus himself can muster inside of him. And then in verse 6, and if you keep your Bibles open, verse 6 is an important, an important passage or verse. Uh, in verse 6, if you quickly look at it, what you find there is really the motto or the theme of the entire letter to the Philippians. And we'll read it. It says there in verse 6, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. And if you just focus in on that verse, what, what you have there essentially is a very powerful statement of confidence by Paul, right? That's what he's expressing to these Philippians, incredible confidence. You're, you're doing great is what he's essentially saying to the Philippians. You are my joy. You're my partners. From the beginning, you've started well. Through difficulty and challenge, you've continued well. God's grace and his mercy have, have launched you, right, in your faith and, and on this incredible journey. And I'm so grateful to you, is what Paul is saying. And then he goes on to say, and I know, I know, I know for certain that the God who launched you so well, he's also going to keep you. He's going to keep working in you, and He's going to keep you working right through to the ultimate completion of you. <laughs> to the completion of you and your faith. Right up until the end. Right up until the day of Jesus Christ. And that is like the day that Jesus Christ returns to this world to claim the world for Himself. Or, 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 or until the day that you pass from this earth and that you go and, and, and then carry on through eternity in his presence. In either case, I've got you right up and I'm going to carry you successfully right through that end. Paul is confident. So confident that the Philippians will finish well. Not because, this is important I think to grasp, he's confident not because the Philippians are so great and wonderful. <laughs> Though they're all obviously a pretty good church. <laughs> but they're not that good that that's what Paul's confidence is in. Rather, it's because God is the one who's going to do it in and through them. That's the confidence. God got them started on this journey. God has been guiding and guarding and protecting them through this journey, and God will see them all the way to completion. That's the confidence. That's how it works, isn't it? In our lives, in our faith, as the church, as Christians. And, and you know what? That, I think, is exactly why Jesus himself actually praises small, what he calls mustard seed size faith. It, it's so interesting that you might remember the story where Jesus does that. that this, he, he challenges the disciples with a particularly challenging thought. And the disciples are almost disturbed by that. And they go back to Jesus and they say, Lord, Increase our faith. 
like they feel, oh man, if we can only acquire or get or score or somehow attain more faith, we'll be okay with the things you say, the challenging things you call us to. But Jesus answers totally in an other direction to what their request is. And Jesus says to them, look, you guys, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, which is like an infamously small seed, right? he says, if you have just that, you can move mountains or uproot trees and cast them into the sea. You see, it's not the increased quantity of faith that the disciples need. That's not it at all. Mustard seed-sized faith is actually plenty. Our confidence is not ever in the greatness of our faith. Your confidence is never in the greatness of your faith. Your confidence is the greatness of the one in whom you put your faith, right? That's where it's at. That's what makes the difference. It's the greatness of the one in whom we plant that tiny little mustard seed, right? It's, and it's frankly, sometimes it's a, it's a small stumbling little mustard seed of faith or faltering little mustard seed of faith. But if we truly plant it in Jesus, it's going to grow because He is going to grow it. Not us. He is going to grow it. Our confident is, confidence is that He who began a good work in us will. It, it doesn't say might. <laughs> It doesn't say might. It says that he will, not hopefully, not even probably, but will bring it to completion. It's really all about him. The starting and the continuing and the completing of what God is working in us. It's all him. Trust that. Trust that, right? I mean, that is the proverbial thing that you can take to the bank. Take it to the proverbial bank and it will pay. It will pay dividends. So as we, as we carry on from there into verse 9, this is, the, this is a big section here, the prayer, right? And verse 9 starts a prayer. Paul starts this. It's a short prayer, but oh my goodness, it's a prayer that's filled with so much stuff. The opening phrase of the prayer actually focuses what the prayer is all about. The core of this prayer is really found in the opening phrase of the prayer. Paul is praying that the Philippians may experience a love that abounds more and more, right? That's the core of what he's praying for. Paul has great affection for these people. I mean, he is emotionally invested in them. And out of that affection for them, Paul's request before the Lord is that their love may abound or grow more and still more. I mean, we have to pause here and give due to this concept of love. I mean, love is a central word. It is the central concept of the Christian faith. Truly, there is no Christian faith without love. The idea, when I think about this, when Paul writes this, this idea, that the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. Oh my goodness. It's overwhelming, really. When I don't just kind of read past that passage quickly without thinking about it, when I, when I dig into the thought of that truth 
that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, it invokes all kinds of deep and overwhelming emotions in me. In Philippians 3, Paul proclaims that the love of Christ is something that is so broad, so wide, so deep, so high, that it actually surpasses knowledge or understanding by us mere mortals. We can only just kind of begin to see it. And in the human language, love, oh man, it is so hard for us to capture in human language this concept of love. Because it is, it is an experience that goes deep down to the heart and to the very psyche and the very soul. It goes to my very core. It goes to my very gut of who I am when I truly begin to think about love. And I guess that that is why we struggle so hard to find a word to capture all that love is. We really do. The word raw love really doesn't do justice to what is being talked about here. I mean, the word love, it can mean so many things. It can mean too many things, even cheap and frivolous things. If, if I say I love coffee and a bran muffin, <laughs> which I do, but how can we even use the same word for that as the love of Christ for us? And you probably all know that the New Testament, they use this, this unique Greek word, agape, to differentiate from other kinds of love. But I don't even know if that very word really captured it all. And we don't even have a word like that in the English language. So for me, and I think for most of us, it's the pictures of Scripture that paint love for us, that express love for us. It's the stories about love that make it come alive and true for us. It's, it's the father passionately welcoming home his wayward, rebellious, broken son who does not deserve a welcome at all. It's that kind of picture that paints love. It's the sinful woman, shamefully, in tears, slobbering all over Jesus' feet as she attempts to anoint them and, and, and drenches them in her tears and wipes them with her hair. Because... And why? Because she so, so captured and represent the truth that the one who is forgiven much loves much. That's, that's a picture of love. It's, it's the minority, typically despised Samaritan who risks life and limb and, and, and money and inconvenience and his time to rescue a Jew, a member of the very race that so often treated Samaritans with disdain and hate. That's what it looks like. That's what love looks like. It's the shepherd who risks the wilds, right, to rescue one lost lamb. Or how about this? How about this picture? It's the picture of the Son of God hanging on mankind's cruelest instrument of torture and death, spilling his own life's blood for my sake. Actually living out, in radical terms, living out the truth that greater has no greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In his attempt to capture this idea of love in words, Paul, actually, he can't use one word. He uses a whole series of words, a whole anthem of words. 
Because one word just won't do it. When he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never, ever fails. That's what Paul's prayer for these Corinthians. Right? Paul's prayer is that all of that love, and all that love is, that it may abound and grow and be established more and more in the lives of these Philippian Christians. And through Scripture, being written for us as well, that same message is delivered to us. That same prayer is delivered to us as well. And I think that these Philippian Christians, they, they've already got a lot of love amongst them. It's already there. I think that's exactly why Paul says that it may abound more and more. It's like there's never enough of it. It's like, yeah, it's there, but let's get, let's get more and more. You know, even in my short experience with Aerosmith Church, I, I know there's love here. I experience love here. I feel and have felt the love and the welcome here. And the prayer of all of us, I think, is that there would just be more and more and more of that. That it just may abound more and more. We may never be satisfied with how much there is and always beg God and turn to God for you know what? If we do that, if we keep pursuing that and giving ourselves to God to grow that in us, there is no limit to this church. There is no limit to Christ's church. It will be the most transformational instrument in Port Alberni and in British Columbia and in the world. More and more love abound. Man, that will have an impact both on us and our community and the community around us. And as we move into the second half of verse 9, we see that Paul prays for this extravagant love to abound in or with, some versions say, abound in or with knowledge and discernment. That's sort of the context in which this love is expected to abound. I actually like the way J.B. Phillips translates this. He says, My prayer for you is that you may, you may have still more love, a love that is full of knowledge, and a love that is full of every wise insight. I like that. That, that, that puts it well. You see, this kind of love is not blind. We often say love is blind. This kind of love is not blind. This kind of love is like wide eyes, wide open aware. That's the kind of love this is. Right? Aware. It's not blind. This kind of love always compels us to seek more knowledge and understanding and discernment. Right? This kind of love doesn't overlook things. It doesn't turn a blind eye to things. It sees clearly in the full light of God's and here's the amazing thing about it, is that even though it does that, it continues to love anyways. It still loves anyways. And it responds to all things in both truth and love. And in that honest, God-directed love and truth, you know what? That is where 
healing and transformation. Good, godly, holy change can become possible. It takes both. It takes both for that transformation to become possible. Spiritual knowledge and discernment, man, these are gifts of God, along with love, just as much as love, connected, inseparable of love. And they're gifts that the world has always you know, had a desperate need for. And perhaps no more so than today. There is such a truth confusion in our world today. There is so much moral confusion, so much spiritual confusion in our world today. And Paul knows that the Philippians must and that we must grow in those gifts of knowledge and spiritual discernment in that. Right? In those two things. And that actually, I think, is what helps spur on our love to then grow and abound more and more. When we take along with it that truth and that knowledge and that discernment. You know, I think it starts to create a picture for me where, where we have this call, this necessity to begin to wrestle with the hard issues of life and the hard issues even in ourselves in the light of the truth of God's Word. Right? And, and in, in, in response to the living Christ who actually lives within each of us, we need to take those things and wrestle with, with the issues of our lives. And the result of that wrestling match, that's really what discernment is. That's where we're exercising and practicing discernment in that very wrestling match. And this whole process, that whole kind of wrestling match, it must be conducted in the love of Christ. The unconditional love of because you see, if it's not, if we separate that truth and knowledge and that wrestling match in our lives from love, it gets very scary. It gets incredibly scary. That could be too much for us, right? I mean, God's holy truth without love, it would undo us. It would crush us. And, and, and frankly, the other way of it, with, if it's love without that truth, it would just be shallow and superficial. They need to be connected. They need to come together into our lives. We must always read and we must see and we must understand and we must, un we must speak the truth of God's Word and knowledge under the protection and the guidance of grace and love. That's that whole idea of speaking the truth in love. We have to be able to do that. To ourselves too, right? The, the, the love of God, frankly, it is the very centerpiece of the truth of God anyways. <laughs> right? It's part of it. It is a big chunk of it. And I, I, that's why John proclaims that God actually is love. He is love. A big chunk of the truth of God is that He is love. And He's gracious. And you know what? Thank God for it, because we all need it. We all need it. In verse 10, Paul sort of continues this prayer and he continues very much along the same direction that we're kind of hidden, or heading. And, and he says that he, he wants us to abound in love more and more with knowledge and discernment so that 
Right? He's got to sow that. It's like he's carrying on the thought here. Here's the reason why. So that we might approve what is excellent. Right? He's really carrying on the same thought. Approve what is excellent. The idea here is that, that we can use love along with knowledge and discernment to be able to differentiate. Right? That's what it's, that's what it's all about. To be able to differentiate between good and evil. And not only good and evil, but how about good and, and better than good? And how about better and best? And how about even best and excellent? Because that's where he's heading towards, right? Towards excellent. That is where God is taking us and growing us towards this excellence. And that is one of the results of this life that we have in Christ. That through this love-bathed relationship that we have with God through Christ, we are gifted with this ability, His ability actually, to be able to confront our daily choices as we live through the day, or maybe moment-by-moment choices, right? And understand, and see, and discern, and then actually choose the good, and then the better, and then the best, and then the excellent. That is the direction or the trajectory that we're on. The love of God and the knowledge of God, the truth of God sets us on that trajectory. That is the ability that God started in us from the beginning. And that is what He is developing and deepening in us. And that is what He will complete in us right up to the end of our time in this world. Approve what is excellent. Now that includes all kinds of choices in our lives to come to the place of approving what is excellent. It, it just deals with things like what, what, big things and small things. Things like what we read and what we choose to watch. Things like the way we pass our time. The conversations we have and how we have them. It has to do with the passions and the desires that we have and, and how we deal with them or just give in to them. It has to do with the degree to which we discipline ourselves and how we respond to and interact with the world around us and how we deal with all of those choices, right? How we deal with all of those choices lovingly and, and how much truth we bring into it. The, how much discernment we utilize in making of those choices. It really tells a story in our lives, doesn't it? It tells much of the tale of our own spiritual sensitivity and progression. Are, 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 are we working at going right from, or, or I should probably stop there, are we letting God work in us, is what I really should say, to go from evil to good, and good to better, and better to best, and best to excellent. That's what he's working at. That's where he wants to take us. And you know what? The truth is we may all be, and I know I am at different places in actually different issues of this in my life. Some issues I'm, I'm actually progressed further forward on than I have in other issues. Some issues I can first still get hung up on quite easily. We're all kind of at different places and different gauged levels of our development in this. It's just the way we are. But what is for sure that God's got us on a trajectory. <laughs> and He will keep going until He completes 
what he began in us. Trust him in that. We need to just learn to lean on him in that and just begin to faithfully exercise some of these things that we're called to, some of these tools that he's actually given us. Exercise things like submission. (laughs) Practice that. Submission. Exercise yielding. And and in in the submission and the yielding, then exercise dependence on the Holy Spirit who actually lives in you and will help you in this. Every time I've submitted, uh, he's come through and helped me. Every single time. When I've not submitted or forgotten to submit it or, or sort of been strayed away from submission, it all starts to unravel. But as soon as I submit, he works it out. He just does. That's it. And that's like a 100% thing in my life that I've noticed. When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. That's the submission. Right there is submission. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth. And really the first place on earth it needs to come is right here. Right? Start here. It's submission. And it's surrender. And it's dependence. That'll get us there. That'll get us there. So that's the approving what is excellent. Then Paul goes on to say, and approve what is excellent, and that we may be pure and blameless. Pure and blameless. That's the other part of what Paul is expecting as a result here. Approving what is excellent, and that we may become pure and blameless. Now, the word here for pure, it's a really interesting Greek word. It's also a word that, that, that very often means sincere. Sincere. It also means transparent. And, and, and also, very interesting, actually more literally what the word means is sun-tested. Sun-tested. That's what it literally means. How do they get you know, all of these different meanings from that word? Well, it, it, I'll tell you in a minute, but, but here's the thing. So we could read this passage as, you know, so that we may be pure and blameless, or so that we may be sincere and blameless. Many versions actually read like that. Or that we may be transparent and blameless. Or that we may even be sun-tested and blameless. So let, let's talk about how they came up with that word. This particular word, uh, it comes from a day back then, back in, in the olden days, in, in Jesus' times, when, when um, potters would sell their wares in the marketplace. Right? So you've got a potter, a whole bunch of pots that he's made, thrown over the week, fired them, brings them to the, and he's going to sell them in the marketplace. And, and dishonest or insincere potters they, they would have cracked pottery, because they all would have some cracked pottery in the process of moving and making, whatever. Some of it gets cracked. Sometimes it's just a minor crack, and they go, oh, I still want to sell this thing. So what they'll do is they rub wax into the crack, and then they kind of polish it smooth, and the, whack, or the crack actually disappears. You can't see the crack anymore because the wax is in there and rubbed all smooth along with the surface of the pottery, and, and it polishes out, and the crack actually disappears. And then they sell the cracked pot at full price. <laughs> the dishonest, the insincere potter. However, a sincere or a transparent or a sun-tested merchant was one whose pottery could actually stand the test of holding that pot up to the bright light of 
the sun, which would immediately shine through the translucent wax and reveal the hidden wax. That's where the term comes from. So it was a very common practice that day. When you were, bare, when you were buying pottery, you would always hold it up to the sun and see if your potter was sincere, without wax, <laughs> sun-tested, or not. Is this a pure good pot or a cracked pot? <laughs> right? The idea here is that we should live as people who willingly draw close to God and transparently stand in the intense light of his truth. That's who we need to be. And, 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 and thus let the light and the truth and the love of God reveal us. And then purify us. Right? Be children of the light, Paul says. Get a picture of that there. Walk in the light as he is in the light, the Apostle John says. Now let me warn you about what will happen if you do that. <laughs> if you dare to do that, I will tell you what's going to happen. Honestly, really, doing this will probably reveal some of our cracks. And I should change that right away, because that word probably is not accurate. It will! It won't probably, it will reveal some of our cracks. Maybe even some cracks that we have quietly, secretly rubbed some wax into, hoping to hide them from others. Because we're good Christians. We're not supposed to have cracks. So we've got to rub some wax in our cracks so people don't notice. So that we can at least convince others that we're okay Christians. No. No. The light of God, it'll shine through all that. It will. It will. It'll shine through any hiding or ignoring or pretense or ignorance that we might have concerning our conduct and our character, i.e. our cracks. And you know what? For some people, I know that can sound scary and even terrifying or embarrassing to stand in that light and have our but it's okay. It's okay. In fact, it's good. And here's where we remember. We need to remember the love of God. The love of God governs all of this. The love of God protects us in this process. Remember, it's all bathed in the love and the grace of God. Revealing our cracks. That's what God intends to work in us and do in that's what he's going to do. That is the process of his shaping our discernment. What, what's the point of discernment if we can't have things in our lives that we can exercise discernment on? That's how we move from evil to good and good to better and better to best and best to excellent. We can't acknowledge the cracks or see the cracks or have them revealed. We don't move forward in that process. So he's got to do that for our betterment, for our growth. And I know that when we see a word like pure and blameless, oh man, those are heavy words. 
There's a lot of expectation when I see these words that I've got to be pure and blameless. Man, now please don't think that that is something that we need to achieve in order to be acceptable to God. <laughs> that I've got to somehow figure out how I can get myself to be pure and blameless. Because pure and blameless is actually something that God declares me to be. <laughs> that's, that's the good news. Even though I'm not. It's something that the God declares you to be even though you're not. Something that, that God views us as. Gifts upon us. A status of purity and blamelessness even though we've got cracks and brokenness. Even though we often try to hide those flaws and pretend that they're not there. Or that they're not really all that bad. That's what grace and forgiveness, these, these, these beautiful words in the Christian faith, this is what grace and forgiveness and redemption and atonement are all about. Getting us that status, even though and God can do this even though we're not because of what Jesus did for us. He took our cracks. He took our imperfections onto Himself. He deals with them. He bore them in His body. He pays for them. He died for them. And He erased them. And in exchange for our cracks that He took, He gave us His purity and His blamelessness. And that's what God credits to us. Christ's own righteousness. So we've got it already from Christ. We've got pure and blameless already. But even more so, God just doesn't want to just leave it there. He does even more. Even more so. God wants to then continually work in our lives. In those areas that Christ died for and God exposes them to us and makes us aware of them he still does that he still does do that right and and we don't have to be fearful or threatened by that 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 light exposes cracks and he doesn't have to cause me to quiver in fear or tremble because we have Christ's purity and blamelessness and Christ has got our cracks but the even more so part is that Christ now says to us, look, I'm revealing this to you so we can work on it together. Now let's work on those things together. That cracked stuff. Let's actually heal it up. Fix it up. Let, let's work at love. Let's work at knowledge. Let's work at discernment and truth of my word and approving and practicing what's good and better and best and excellent so that we can slow down any further cracking. <laughs> let's stop the cracking process. So that we can also slow down the hurt. Because these things can cause hurt. So let's slow down the hurt. Let's eliminate the hurt by working on this. And all of this is Paul's prayer. All of this actually is God's agenda for us. So we don't have to be tempted really to put wax in our cracks and try to hide everything and appear to be something we're not. Just be sincere before God. Just be transparent. Just be sun-tested. And He'll help you heal it all up and deal with it. Really, 
God has already made us something we're not anyway, so we don't have to try to pretend we're something we're not. (laughs) Isn't that good news? He's already made us something we're not, so we don't have to pretend to be something we're not. He's already declared you and me as pure and holy, even though we're not. No need to fake it. Just stand in the light and let Him expose the cracks and the flaws and the sins, and He'll work on it with us so that we can grow more and more towards what He's already declared us to be. Isn't that great? And in the end, um, He will see to it that we get there. He's going to get us there. All the way to the end of it, He's going to be working that in. In verse 11, Paul declares that uh, this God process in us as believers, right? We'll summarize this love abounding more and more process, this knowledge and discernment process, this approving of what is excellent process, this pure, sincere, transparent, blameless process. It'll all result, it'll all result in what Paul generally and very briefly calls It's going to result in the fruit of righteousness in your life. And and I love what he does from there. He goes on to um, talk about where that fruit comes from. That fruit comes through who? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of who? God. Right? It doesn't come through us. It comes through Jesus Christ. And it's for the glory and the praise of not us. If it came through us, it could be to the, to the glory of us, but it's not. It doesn't come through us anyways. It comes through Jesus Christ, so it's to the glory of God. Right? It's entirely, entirely to the glory and the praise of God because it comes to us entirely, entirely through the Son of God. Now let me just wrap up in a couple of sentences. <laughs> There's a section left, and I'm just going to skim right over that section. It's a cool section. It's a good section for you to probably read at home. Um, but really in the section from verses 12 to 18, I love what Paul does here. Paul really takes his circumstances, the difficult circumstances that he's in. Right? He's in prison. He's potentially facing the end of his life. It feels like, from a human perspective, he's been shut off. He can't go do what he was doing before. He can't minister. He can't roam around and preach. He can't keep bringing the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the world that he knew. He's in chains. He's not free. But no matter what the circumstances, you see, here's what Paul proclaims here. No matter what. doesn't matter. No matter the motives of other people. (laughs) Because there's other people who are now doing this, some doing it out of good motives, some doing it out of terrible motives. Right? Paul's in prison now. Hey, that makes room for me to become the guy. Some are doing that. Some are even thinking, hey, if we kind of stir this up and sort of push the... Maybe it'll even make it worse for Paul in prison. (laughs) And he'll even be persecuted worse. Some are doing it for those reasons. But Paul looks at the whole thing and he says, so what? Who cares? He goes, I'm okay with it all. I'm, I'm glad, Paul says. I'm at peace. I'm even joyful. Joyful. 
because he can clearly see that the message of the gospel and the love of God and the grace of God is advancing through it all. And the truth is, over the course of Paul's life, I don't know if he would have always seen that. Earlier on in his life, I'm not sure he would have seen that. He was a pretty intense guy early on in his life. (laughs) But at this point in his life, he's seen God work enough through him, through others, through just the church, that he knows God's got it all. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. The very end little section there, I like the way Eugene Peterson writes it. After Paul sort of goes through all of this and says, it's okay, God's in control. He's doing it. He's working out no matter what motives, everything. He goes, so how am I to respond? That's what's happening out there. So how am I to respond? He goes on to say, I've decided that I really don't care about their motives. (laughs) Whether mixed or bad or indifferent, every one of them opens his mouth. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed. So I just cheer them on. (laughs) Because really he's cheering God on. God's in control. Even in those circumstances, God's in control. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for us. Just as Paul prayed for the Philippians, I want to pray for us. And I want to pray that you grow us. I want to pray that you just take this church and just infuse it with more. It's more. There's good things here, Lord. There's been a great history here. An amazing track record over the past stretch of time. God, I just want to pray more on top of that. I want to pray your more for this church on top of that. More love. More truth. More knowledge. More wisdom. More grace. More of your gospel. And more truth to share. God, do your more. Do your abounding more and more for this body of people. And help us, Lord, to give ourselves over to that that you're working in. In the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.